I'm not sure we could indict Washington, but I think that uh, certainly I'm sure something was done. Uh, Washington was relatively clean, but it, but it, but if you look at, at you know George W. Bush, or if you looked at Bill Clinton, or if you looked at Ronald Reagan, sure. I mean, the answer would be that that you could, and and people should be wary. I mean, this is this is sort of the case that I'm making is that we've become so comfortable with the executive branch of the government abusing its citizens and violating our rights and violating what they're structured to do under the law that we've just become used to it. And, and if we start treating them as criminals, maybe they'll think twice before they act so criminally in the future. Yes, folks, based Ben Shapiro there. I've often thought, you know, I, I mean, I definitely think any uh, president who uses, does a first strike nuclear attack, that should come with an automatic 10-year jail sentence. It's that worth it to you? To uh, this, You, you want to save the world? It, just pro forma, we're doing a death penalty for that. Or not a death penalty, at least a 10-year sentence. Um, there you go. You know, we got to be reasonable. Creative thinking from the lucky universe. No, I mean, I like it. I think it's, you know, put your money where your mouth is on that. We'll be talking to, to uh, Ben Shapiro, another Ben, another logic Ben. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the Mr. logical Ben's. Oh, wait, wait, go ahead. No, I just say Mr. Ben Burgess will be joining us for the post game. Patreon.com slash left reckoning. Always good to and be chatting with a good buddy. Uh, there. We'll definitely have some reaction to Trump's, uh, you know, whatever indictment this is. I think four. I think it's four, right? Yeah, we'll be diving into that. Ben also has a new piece out in Jacobin on conservatives and Marxism. It can be a lot of fun. We also have uh, some deep dives into self-driving cars. Matt's got a little trip down memory lane uh, with his teacher and inspiration in life, Mr. Tim Pool. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so I I recently had a tweet go. First of all, I've tweeted this thing a number of times, which is that Tim Pool guest lectured in my class at NYU, uh, and it, it was ridiculous. I've tweeted that a number of times, and for some reason, it got like five hundred retweets uh, uh, last weekend. So we'll be uh, telling that story in the post game, include and also maybe digging into Tim's actual record uh, uh, at Occupy, which mm. maybe w it wasn't the whole like sort of unbiased journalist just telling the truth to uh, you know information hungry masses on new technologic technological forms of media. Uh, maybe it's something a little bit worse and less productive than that. Um, but yeah, so patreon.com just left reckoning. Yeah, and in a little bit, um, we're going to be premiering the conversation I had uh, with uh, Saurabh Amari, um, who just wrote a very interesting book called Tyranny, Inc., um, about the role of private power in threatening, I don't know, people's everyday life um, and just general freedom in this country. It's an interesting book uh, because uh, Saurabh, as people might know, or if they're not familiar with him, is um, a self-described conservative. Um, and it's interesting to sort of hear um, where this argument um, against uh, private tyranny comes from, uh, from the right. But before we jump into that, um, I think we're going to go up north to Oklahoma for a little bit um, to take a very interesting visit into a kind of public hearing uh, on building more affordable housing uh, for people in Edmond, Oklahoma, a you know, city much like a place much like many parts of the country is really struggling under the fact that most working people cannot afford um, to let alone buy their own home, um, but as becoming more and more the case, just being able to rent um, in, in the communities that they work in. Yeah, the, uh, Wendy Suarez uh, 
at WSUARES on Twitter posted a, a couple of edited uh, TikTok style clips of a, he- a city council hearing on affordable housing. And, uh, you know, we were maybe, well, some folks thought we were overly charitable to a voter uh, in our Patreon episode uh, on Sunday. These are people that make my blood boil, okay? This yeah. is where I have to really bite my tongue uh, and I, I'll, I'll let somebody else uh, speak the response before I let it. But here's first these uh, folks speaking at this uh, Oklahoma City housing uh, uh, hearing. There's. <laughs> There was so much said tonight that was frankly embarrassing, um, disgusting. We come here because we want our privacy. We want our single-family homes, and we are. Kind of- Again, this is edited by <laughs> Wendy Suarez, which I'd love to see the style guide for uh, editing these TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> and a Vic Burger like. Uh- Very much <laughs> a Vic Burger edit there. <laughs> and we. Our country is runs on the free market. It, it's we're not a socialist, communist society that our government would shape our community according to what they wanted. I came to Edmond. I didn't live in Edmond properly when I first came. I lived in an apartment, and then later on, I was able to move inside Edmond proper. As you progress, so is your ability to live in a certain place. That's a free society. That is what we are. We're not a socialist. You back off the mic, ma'am. I know I can I can tell you I worked my butt off to get here and I don't want to see anything happen here that could diminish our stock you know our investment in this community as individual uh, residents here but I worked long and hard over many many years to get there we can't afford for a lot of us that have invested a lot of money in our homes that's in many cases the biggest asset we have we can't afford to have those assets depreciated on us because of what. Now, that's a very concise statement. If I could just like you know, remove anger from the situation there, <laughs> because this stuff, I do find it revolting that people feel like, and don't quite make the connections like, oh, yeah, this is why uh, people are homeless. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's because of this basically like um, uh, distributed conspiracy that capitalism is that, which is like property owners are going to be concerned with the asset value <laughs> of their properties. So it's not about like, Ooh, this shelter, this community, it's what's the price of this that I can fetch when I want to cash out. Mm-hmm. And I, man, it's uh, it's really revolting before, uh, you know, we respond any further. I it's, there's an interesting dynamic here because we have uh, at least the first guy speaking here is a developer. And, um, Typically, I wouldn't think of developers as uh, uh, you know speaking on the side of affordable housing, um, but you know I'll just let it speak for itself. I've been a builder and a developer here in town since the '80s. I would like for some of these people that are standing up and saying we worked hard, we worked long, to come out and work an open house with us some weekend. The Parade of Homes brings in hundreds and hundreds of people, right? Nurses. Parade of homes, he says. Nurses, teachers, they can't afford to live here. It's sad, right? We've got to do something about affordability. This isn't about giveaways. I think a lot of people think it's about giveaways. It's not. When 75% of your workforce can't live in the town they work in, that's a sad statement. So we're here, you can't come in, attitude has got to stop. 
My mother raised six kids by herself in a house. The mortgage payment was $54 a month. She sold hamburgers for 35 cents. That was our home. And she took care of it the best she could. Fast forward 2023. My wife and I, we live in East Edmond. We're lucky. Shazam, things are different. That house is worth more than $54 a month. That doesn't mean that where my mother raised six kids by herself is any less. And I hear people say we worked hard to get in there. She worked hard to put that roof over our house. Stop it there. That we I worked hard sentiment. Sure you did. A lot of people work hard, man. Only certain people are compensated in a certain kind of way where they could afford that. And uh, a lot of those people are older because no people from our generation uh, really understand anything like that. There's this uh, um, piece here from the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University. Uh, so, you know, it's, you know, super um, great, but uh, Harvard here uh, doing some good work. Um, and if you look at like this is just Oklahoma, but this is true of every single state. The supply of low cost housing uh, rentals uh, continues to decline. And the stock here of under $600 housing, there was uh, 268,000 units in Oklahoma in 2011. And in 2021, there's 182,000. All the other ones are up. Uh, and I guess it's 2000 and over is uh, just up slightly. But, uh, and the other thing is, is like, there's a sentiment, there's a, there's an edge to that sentiment expressed there that I don't quite, uh, that seems even a little bit harsher than I'm used to of like work in here and, you know, I wasn't in here, but I moved up in here. But mm -hmm. I think it might speak to the history of Edmund a little bit. If you go to the Wikipedia, um, in the early 20th century, Edmund was known as a sundown town. Racial covenants barred property sales to individuals of races other than white people or Native Americans in every neighborhood built between 1911 and 1949, except the Edmund Highway edition in 1924. Uh, the uh, racial housing covenants became unenforceable in 1948 after the Shelley v. Kramer. But that stuff persists. Like that sort of sentiment of superiority. Um, like, look, I the, the city council and the developers need to, in my opinion, go over the will of those housing owners' uh, desires and build public housing. Mm -hmm. Or somehow facilitate affordable housing. I don't. It doesn't sound like a f public housing per se is in the cards, but you got to do something to make sure that like the people that like are working at your hospital don't have to commute from like a different like poor suburb of Oklahoma City because that's what this is. This is a. I mean, what's it sounds like a very nice suburb of Oklahoma City, and like even that to me, I'm an urban supremacist. We have to retake all these little. Um, um, sort of communities that are leaving urban areas basically for tax reasons, you've been getting a free ride on these cities. And like that stuff has got to end. So, but I don't know, you can go ahead, David. No, I mean, I think just at, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is one of the fundamental contradictions of, of what our economic system does um, to just things, basic things like housing, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of thinking about housing as a a home uh, for families and for people to live in, um, to be a part of the community, to work in the community. It's what most of these people were talking about. Right? There was there was stuff about like, oh, I want my privacy. I don't want certain people in my neighborhood. 
But a lot of the ones that were sort of highlighted, at least in that clip, were about, oh, I want my property values to look a, a certain kind of way. And to maintain that kind of property value, what that means is more and more people need to be without a home. Uh, more and more of your neighbors need to have to, um, you know, struggle to get by or in fact not be your neighbors despite the fact that they are driving into your community every day to do the work that is necessary to keep that place functioning. And this is just one of those things that like as you start to have a stronger political critique, political economic critique of, of the system, you realize that it turns things upside down. Right. Because you understand what a home is in the general sense. Right. It's walls. It's a roof. It's a door. It's a kitchen. Um, it's supposed to be a place where you can live. Um, but what it is under capitalism is an investment. Um, and it is something that people want to be able to extract value from at a future date or be able to use the leverage so that they can um, you know, financialize their home to be able to get loans out, to be able to get money out of it. Right. And once you start to introduce that into a system like this, um, you start to become really, really cruel. Where instead of saying like, you know what, it's not right that the people who are working in my community, you know, not to mention like the people working for low wage jobs, but the nurses, the people who are teaching my children how to read. Um, I don't think that they should live in my, my neighborhood because I want to make sure that I have a certain num numerical number, um, sorry, numerical uh, value um, next to my home uh, when I go to the bank and I want to sort of extract some money from it. That's, that's a sick ass thing to say. Um, when you look at the uh, affordability crisis in this country, you look at the difficulty for most people to get ahead. And then you look at the generational reality that more and more people are unable to you know, start a family if they want to, because financially they can't. To be able to stay in their own community, more and more people can't do that. Um, to be able to have the security that comes uh, with having a home that's not going to be under threat of in four years, your landlord decides to buck up your rent $1,000 a month. Um, it's sick and it's a broken fundamental, it's a fundamentally broken system. You know, kudos to the people out there who were speaking <laughs> against those folks. Um, but those people who are making those arguments are a real cruel embodiment of, of a system that is built on deprivation. And that's the thing yep. that's fundamental to capitalism is it's the deprivation, the poverty, um, the dispossession or the lack of possession for the many is baked into the system so that the few can reap those rewards. And it doesn't work for people. It is tearing our society apart. Um, and, uh, you know, good on, you know, good, particularly on that um, the, the, the speaker, I'm assuming politician there, um, you know, saying it's like, you know, my mom worked hard too uh, to put a roof over my head. So what are you talking about hard work, right? Um, because that's yeah. always the kind of second level assumption too, is that people who need things to be more affordable aren't working hard. Um, you know, it, it's yes. when you talk about like poor people not working hard generally, it really shows to me that you are as far away from those people in that reality as possible. Because as somebody who grew up um, in a very poor a part of the country, somebody who grew up in poverty, somebody who grew up on food stamps, my family and my neighbors and my community were some of the hardest working people I know. They weren't taking long golf trips. They weren't going to the islands um, for two months in the summer. They were working 24 seven, oftentimes multiple jobs. And that's when I was a kid in the nineties to the two thousands. It's even worse today in 2023, which is even more frightening. Uh, to think about uh, what that reality is for everyday people, and we're li we're living through it. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, it, when when people be and also like you know there is like a degradation that is also happening to those people too, right? Instead of being able to be a human being, which is you know I'm sorry, like I, I'm a, despite all the nastiness that we see, I am a big believer in like in humans, right? In people, yep. right? 
It's why I, I do what I do. It's why I believe what I believe. Um, and when you degrade yourself to like capital, to the system, to say something like, hey, I don't want people to be able to afford to live in a home um, because I want to make more money. That's degrading yourself as a human being. Right. And, you know, those aren't the those people aren't the victims completely in the story. But it's a nasty thing to introduce into your into your heart. It really, it's, I mean, it's, it's like, I think the ultimate corrosive agent um, for living in a society. And it reminds me, I mean, and this sort of issue and why I found this video so interesting is it really pulls, puts into stark relief this um, discussion that had, and I appreciate progressives like Dante Atkins, uh, who, you know, I, I think that we can work with them on policy a lot, but like this ultimately gets cuts to the chase. Dante says uh, the most significant ideological disagreement I have with most DSA types uh, I run into is this. I care about progressive policy, not class politics. If rich people support good policy and poor people don't, I don't care. I want policy. A united working class is not my objective. And Bosco says, this is an honest description of the difference between broad progressive and socialist politics. Socialists mm -hmm. know that capitalists, as capitalists, not individual outliers, can't support politics that give the working class more rights, much less freedom from class domination. And you see those people embody it. To the point that they're going out of their way uh, those evenings to go to city council meetings and mm -hmm. agitate against housing people <laughs> because it's going to cost them. They aren't going to be able to sell their house or even more benevolently um, pass on their house to their kids. Like mm -hmm. they're, it's or it's or they're if they are, it's not going to be worth as much. And like that is just you know fundamentally. Uh, it's greed. It's, you know, and you know, we, we have terms for these things and it's not positive. You know, last thing I'll, I'll say on this, and this is maybe a little bit less on the housing point, but on the Atkins point that Bhaskar is sort of coming out to is like, this is a real problem with progressives at large, right? Is that there is this kind of fixation on like policy above um, the process, right? In the sense of like, I don't know, like those people will say like, I just want to see this end result. I don't care who does it or how it gets done, right? Um, and without jumping into some of the weirder, more sinister stuff that can sometimes go along with saying, I don't care how it gets done as long as it looks a certain way. Um, yeah. This is a fundamental problem that progressives fall into that is not solely a, like an issue of progressives, but it's something that progressives should not get tricked into, into thinking that like you see so much resentment in this country, even on policies or um, ideas or, or things that are generally morally, maybe economically correct. But there's this feeling that it's being done to you, right? So instead of it being something that is like collaborative and like, oh, we want to deal with housing. So we're going to do this kind of thing. Oh, the state is coming down and telling you to do this. Or, you know, the professional managerial classes coming in and telling you to do this. Or the corporations coming in and coming and telling you to do this. Regardless of what even um, the subject matter is, there is a lot of resentment that builds up in this system because a lot of people don't feel a lot of control over their lives. And it's not just a feeling, it's a reality. A lot of people don't have control of their lives because the system denies people basic freedoms. And um, I think it's really critical um, for, for progressives at large, but also socials, not to fall into this trap of misunderstanding sometimes when you see things that even you might disagree with somebody's frustration with the policy or something like that. Understand that also a lot of this stuff does come down um, to a feeling of a lack of control in, in your life and the fact that in, in, in the experience of this sort of being mandated or pushed on you. And socialists in particular should be very, very sensitive 
um, to that, which is why instead of um, you know wanting to push forward like a top-down Fabian, for people who don't know who that is, the Fabians where we're going to have a bunch of fancy boys come together and sort of build socialism from the top down. I reject that completely, um, even, you know, even if I might want some of the things that they want, because I think it's really important to build these things up from, from the bottom up. One, so that they, um, they have the support that is necessary to win the fight against capital and the forces that want to prevent them. But two, so that people understand these things are like our inheritance, right? So public power, public energy is our inheritance. Public housing is our inheritance. Um, you know, union protections are our inheritance. And it's not just this kind of top-down mandate from some kind of, um, you know, metaphorical or something that feels far off from, from you or your influence. It just, it's, it's a mentality that drives me nuts. And you see it um, with a lot of people on the left too, from things like sin taxes, right? Um, or all this kind of stuff. Oh, we're gonna control the behavior of people because they don't know right. what's best for themselves. That is just flat out bad politics. And it's a bad mentality to bring into any kind of movement that wants to liberate people. You know, I mean, it's a bit parenthetical, but on that note, the whole behavioral economic shit, um, mm -hmm. like you've, have you seen that stuff's falling apart? Um, one of like the main, I forget which proponents, maybe we'll have somebody on here. It might be an interesting thing, but yeah. like the, one of the big, like the nudge well, that is Cass Sunstein. I don't know. Maybe somebody in the chat knows, uh, oh, I still have shadows of doubt playing on the Twitch thing. Oops. Um, uh, maybe someone in the chat knows who that was, but it was, um, not the thinking fast and slow guy, Daniel Kahneman. I can't remember, but yeah, like that sort of thing. And it was interesting because those books were all the rage, mm -hmm. um, back in like the Obama administration and, you know, look where we are. <laughs> 100%. Um, well, should we jump to this, uh, the interview here? Um, so Let's like a, a little preamble, I don't know if there's anything you want to say up top. Um, so, you know, we had uh, Sorab on, he wrote this very interesting book, uh, called Tyranny Inc. And, and he is the first, uh, like conservative that we've had on the show probably won't be a very frequent thing. Um, but I, I read his book. I found it to be very interesting and I wanted to bring him on because um, it's very distinct from what you get from a, a lot of the right, particularly like, um, you know, for people who know kind of my backstory, I, when I was younger, um, I sort of rebelled against some of my surroundings and, 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 and considered myself to be on the right as well. And so much of the right wing argument for poverty goes, comes down to this it's culture, right? It's like, oh, people have a bad culture, bad mentality, and this is what creates poverty, right? And this is just like the driving force of the vast majority of Republican politics. Somebody like Ben Shapiro makes these kind of arguments. Somebody like Dave Rubin now loves to make these kind of arguments. And it's, it's BS, and we all know that. Um, the reason that this book is so interesting, and, and Saurabh is an interesting person, is because he recognizes that this is just completely uh, you know, a, a, a false idea of, of what creates poverty is actually the system is is uh, of, of like capitalism, particularly like modern capitalism, is what makes people unfree. Um, it is what present pre um, prevents people from doing things like having a family if they want to, being able to have dinner with their like classic Republican things like, well, if you just have dinner with your kids, right, your kids are going to turn out better and do better. Well, what happens when you are a worker in this country and you don't have a lot of freedom or the ability to say no to your boss when they ask you to work longer hours, right? Or you have to work another job to be able to put food on the table. So yeah, your kids are getting fed, but you can't spend any time with them because you're having to maintain uh, this kind of system. So anyways, um, very interesting uh, to, to talk with to talk with him. Um, again, you know, obviously he's somebody on the right, so we have a lot of fundamental disagreements. Um, but I found this to be a very unique book um, and worth engaging with. 
And I have a feeling it's probably going to be very well read um, and make an impact um, of, to some extent at least. Um, so it's worth being familiar with if, if you don't know already. And I had a really great conversation with him. So hope you enjoy it. All right, folks, see ya. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. David here. Um, I'm really excited to be joined uh, by Sorab Amari, who is the founder and editor of Compact Magazine. Uh, but we're not going to be talking about Compact too much today. We're going to be talking about his new book, Tyranny Inc., um, which actually has just gone live as this uh, will be premiered on Tuesday uh, the 15th. Um, thank you so much uh, for spending some time um, today on Left Reckoning. David, thank you for having me. No, really, I'm really excited to talk to you. I mean, I, I read the book. It's a really interesting um, text, and I want to dive into it a little bit. But just for people who aren't familiar with you, I mean, you would consider yourself to be a man of the right, correct? Yes, um, I was a I was a leftist uh, when I was a high schooler, and in in college, I was a Trotskyist. Um, so I have a complicated ideological history, but I gradually migrated to the right, but a specific corner of the right, which is um, shaped by Roman Catholicism, which is why on economic issues, um, as readers will see, I kind of depart pretty, pretty drastically from the conventional conservative movement. Yeah, I mean, this is what I sort of wanted to get at before we really dive into the book. And I think it will become clear to people as we go through some of the arguments that you make in the text, because I, I really enjoyed the book, um, particularly the introduction I thought was really clever. It tricked me. It got me. It was a, it was a good move there. Um, but, you know, to me, it doesn't read too much as a conservative book. It's very materially rooted. And uh, before we dive into, like, the actual text, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, why do you think this perspective that you lay out um, in this book might be unique compared to other thinkers on the right? Or do you think it's not that much of a departure from typical modern U.S. conservatism? Well, it, it, isn't, it isn't conservative if by conservatism we just mean um, preserving whatever the current um, arrangements in society are. Um, but if you think conservatism should be about, you know, making it easier for people to just live ordinary lives of dignity and safety and comfort, um, then that means you need a conservatism that tackles the, the sort of tyrannies that are generated by the unhindered market system on their own. Um, so it's a kind of reformist conservatism. And in that sense, um, there is something of an American tradition um, stretching back to the Jacksonians uh, and then forward to Teddy Roosevelt. And then the reception of the New Deal by like Eisenhower and Nixon that they, you know, these figures all realized that the kind of unregulated capitalism of the 19th century and early 20th century was in need of reform. And so they came to embrace, you know, uh, progressivism in the case of Teddy Roosevelt with all of its flaws, et cetera. Uh, and then the New Deal in the case of figures like Ike and Eisenhower. It's, it's non-conservative relative to the Reaganite um, ascendancy that we've become accustomed to mm -hmm. since the 1980s, which is, you know, hyper neoliberal and and, um, you know, radically, uh, radically favors the asset less few at the expense of the, I'm sorry, radically favors the uh, 
the the asset owning few at the expense of the assetless many. Uh, sorry, that was needlessly uh, cumbersome to say. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the book is actually born of a place of frustration uh, on my part. You know, I I was one of those people who, you know, at first being a little bit befuddled by the the befuddled and angry about the Trump phenomenon, I came to see why a lot of ordinary working class people were embracing Trumpism. And what stood out about Trump was his opposition to a lot of new liberal um, policies. Now, whether he actually implemented a post neoliberal program is a different question. Um, but a lot of the right continues to have this tendency of lamenting various cultural phenomenon. Oh, phenomena, people aren't getting married. Uh, you know, people are alienated, there is an opioid crisis, but they never link these cultural phenomena to their material roots. Like, it's uh, it's just a cultural thing. People have the wrong ideas. So if we just tell them the good ideas, society will repair itself. And that's, you know, plainly not the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good time to sort of dive in um, to, to, you know, some of the arguments that you lay out in the book, particularly, um, you know, the title of it, Tyranny, Inc. I mean, could you give people a sense of what you mean um, by Tyranny, Inc., and then maybe we can go into some of the examples of, I don't know, the unfreedom that people experience on a regular basis, in fact, um, in the vast majority of their lives? Yeah, David, there have been a number of books about corporate power coming from the right in recent years. Um, what they typically will focus on is the fact that some companies adopt progressive cultural stances, and that's all they, they target. That is not the kind of book this is, as, as you know, having read it. Um, rather, by Tyranny, Inc., I mean a systematic um, profusion of, of coercive practices in the private economy, in our lives as workers and consumers, that envelops all of us. Um, and precisely because these realms of life, like the workplace and the marketplace, are treated as quote-unquote private um, mm -hmm. by our system, they are removed from political contestation from, you know, you, you know, we're used to think of a good society as one in which we are able to democratically contest uh, the big issues, where we, there's give and take. Um, if there's wrongdoing, it's justiciable in the courts. We can... Um, you know, have our day in court, et cetera. None of that, off, you know, increasingly none of that applies to the private economy, which just happens to be where most of us spend most of our time. It's where we shop. It's where we work, which means we spend most of our waking hours as adults at the workplace. And that just happens to be the place where we are told not to expect, you know, democracy, give and take, accountability, et cetera. It's that place is actually it's totally OK to be subjected to coercion. And that's yeah, that's it. And so that's the thesis of what Tyranny Inc. is when you add up all these forms of coercion, which aren't like state directed government mm -hmm. coercion that we're used to being being alert to, but rather much more sinister, in fact, and sort of insidious, invisible forms of coercion. When you add all that up, you get what I call a system of private tyranny. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, I, I want to get into some of these particular examples, and I know this might seem like a really basic question, um, but when, you know, a lot of people on the left sometimes struggle with this and certainly see this on the right. So I want to ask you just bluntly, um, you know, what is the difference in your mind between like public and private power? Because sometimes people think that these can be sort of disentangled neatly, um, and a lot of times there is a connection here. 
Well, I, I, I'm of the school that sees them as being just inextricably bound up with each other and impossible to disentangle. First of all, the kinds of private coercion that I talk about has eminently public consequences, right? So, for example, half of American fast food workers have to rely on uh, public welfare to make ends meet because their wages are insufficient. Uh, a quarter of college adjuncts have to rely on public welfare to make ends meet. So our nation's wage policy, what wages are set by large employers, for example, in the service economy or the service industry has eminently public consequences because uh, when they set wages too low, the rest of this is taxpayers end up um, subsidizing their greed. Uh, so it's, it's very difficult at the level of the consequences to disentangle what pub public and private are. But even more, uh, you know, clearly in some ways at the level of the causes, um, the public and private are deeply bound up with each other. Obviously, the corporate form itself is famously a creature of the state. The corporation exists because of a, a particular sort of legal arrangement that emerged in the 19th century. And we can get into the history of that in the uh, prior to the Jacksonian era, for the most part, uh, corporate uh, charters were granted on a very limited basis by state governments for a specific uh, rendering of a public good. It's, it was only after the Jacksonian era, and in some ways it was a democratization, but in some ways it uh, has saddled us with something uh, worse. In, in the aftermath of the Jacksonian era, Anyone could just charter a corporation just to make a profit, which went against the kind of public good orientation of the original corporate form. But just just to say one tiny example, the corporation, which we, you know, are especially conservatives treat as this sort of autonomous natural being is not, of course, it's not. It's a it's a creature of the state. Our bankruptcy laws, whether or not we intervene in uh, capital markets, all of that is is state driven and state um, directed in some ways, even when the state chooses not to intervene in something that itself is ultimately a political decision. So um, this illusion of thinking of certain things as sort of absolutely private and other things as absolutely public is a great hindrance to reforming some of our major problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so let's let's look at some of the, the, the contemporary um, moment right now when it comes to capitalism and, and, and work for, for people. I mean, one of the arguments that you sort of, I think, skewer in this, in, in, in your text is, I mean, typically, like, uh, you see this all the time, you know, I'm, I'm in Texas, and, you know, there's a lot of horrific labor violations that people experience. Uh, notably, for example, right now, there's this big fight over water breaks, whether or not people working outside in 105 degree weather deserve to be able to drink water and get shaded. A typical response that I'll get from, you know, Republicans that I know or conservatives will be like, well, if you don't like that job, you can just go and get another one. Um, you know, so there's this kind of thesis that, you know, you're going into a contract as equals with an employer and an employee. Um, but, you know, if you look at the totality of, of modern capitalism and what life is like in this country, that kind of thought experiment level understanding of that relationship is a little bit ina inaccurate, in my opinion. But I'm curious if you want to give your take on that. No, it's absolutely uh, illusory. First of all, um, I mean, there are two bases typically put forward by conservatives, uh, you know, conventional conservatives, uh, for why 
they should uphold what's called the doctrine of liberty of contract, which in its classic telling says that employer-employee relations are generally optimal and therefore should not be interfered with. The first one is that both sides have a mutual right to walk away from each other. So, you know, I can I can take a job and I can leave a job. And likewise, the employer can give me a job or it can fire me for whatever reason. And this creates a symmetry. But of course, ordinary people know like that's not how uh, most of us experience uh, joblessness. We can't just uh, just say, oh, well, I, you, oh, you handed down a new term that says I'm going to now be like surveilled 24 seven in mm -hmm. my online use. Therefore, uh, can I renegotiate this? Oh, no, then I will get another job. It doesn't work like that because the worker is much more dependent on the employer than the other way around. So if you voluntarily leave your job, you're not entitled to uh, unemployment insurance, whereas the, work, the employer has all sorts of options for hiring other people because in a given labor market, there are usually uh, far fewer employers than there are employees. So that symmetry is a formal symmetry, true, but in reality, it's, it's a pretty hollow symmetry. It's not, it's not actually the case. Um, the, the, the second basis that defenders of, of the kind of liberty, liberty of contract uh, model will, will bring up, besides the fact that you can uh, walk away from a job, is the fact that there is just, and it's related, is that there's just tremendous competition, right? So that uh, there's many, many employers and many, many employees, and this competition between them means that no one who wants a, who wants a job will be left without one. And there's always, the, again, you can always find a better deal elsewhere. And likewise, they insist wages are just like a perfect crystalline expression of where supply and demand meet each other. That, would, that was kind of true in the late 18th century when you had, you know, lots of yeoman farmers and artisans mechanics. They're all independent and they all sort of they all own their own tools. But ever since the 19th century, as Marx obviously taught, but plenty of other figures, uh, you know, wised up to this in the 19th century. Um, lots of Jacksonians did who weren't necessarily Marxist was the problem was that, uh, you know, in reality, most markets are dominated by very few employers. And when that when that's the case, then the wage, which is the price of labor, is not this perfect, you know, optimal expression of, uh, you know, supply and demand. Rather, it's a relative index of bargaining power between the two sides. So in all these cases, we just see that the that defense of your conservative friends and certainly my conservative friends, I know a lot of them and I'm on, I'm on this side of the debate in some ways, um, is illusory. Like the market has not worked that way since the mid 19th century. And yet a lot of conservative ideology about how labor markets work, the assumption is that we're still in, it's, it's as though we're still in the late 18th century in the age of independent yeomans and mechanics. Yeoman yeah, I mean, mechanics. No, I mean, uh, you know, just coming from my experience, I used to work in the service industry when I was going through through school, and I'll never forget one time, uh, you know, a coworker, you know, making you know correct criticisms of the scheduling practices that we were experiencing, and the boss just pulled out this big binder uh, filled of resumes and threw it on the table and says, "If you don't like it, you know, I'll just flip through this kind of thing." Right. So the idea of these people being equals in this conversation. Um, is, is, is pretty absurd. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about like the, the courts and, and, and corporate powered financialization. But before we get there, um, one thing that, you know, you sort of write about, particularly with scheduling, but it's sort of like throughout your work is not only how like, you know, this system is bad for workers in the sense of low paid wages, you know, abuses on the job site, all that kind of stuff. Um, but how it's really, really difficult for people to have a family or for a mother to care for their child if they don't have this say, for example, in, in, in their scheduling in particular, but across the board that this private tyranny that's you experience like at the workplace also like bleeds over into the rest of your life as well. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, the service industry uh, is is large and ever ever increasing in size since the decline of manufacturing, and in the service service industry and re, you know restaurant business and retail, uh, a, a third of workers nowadays get less than a week's notice of what their upcoming schedule can be. Um, also, there are all these practices uh, that are designed to reduce labor costs to a minimum during periods of low demand. So, for example, constantly scheduling you, but then taking away the shift or um, mm -hmm. uh, scheduling you for what's called clopening shifts, which is the worker comes in just for the, like the first two hours after opening of the shop and then again two hours at the end of the shop. Well, that makes a chaos of people's ordinary lives because people have kids, they have elderly parents they need to take care of, etc. So when you sort of do that with their schedule, there's, they have no sense of certainty. And again, to go back to the cultural issue, a lot of conservatives say, oh, you know, like kids are having issues because parents don't spend time with them. Well, on the lower rungs of the labor market, it's because, you know, no one has any sense of certainty about what their schedule is like. And this didn't used to be the case. This is, you know, sociologists of labor document that this is a relatively recent development. Um, it's like one more neoliberal turn of the screw where uh, it used to be that the costs associated with periods of low demand, whether you're at a restaurant or a retail shop, whatever, were borne equally by both sides, right? Like, I'm going to schedule you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and Saturday. And sure, okay, Saturday you showed up and demand was low. You got less tips and I got less in, you know, uh, in sales. Fine, whatever. But we both kind of share the downside between employer and employee. But by making it in this way, using algorithmic human resources scheduling and these kinds of practices where it's like the absolute minimum labor expended based on periods of low demand. Um, yeah, it's good for the employer, but it just makes a hash of people's personal lives. And so workers who are subjected to this, again, studies show are, you know, they have much their kids are much more likely to have tantrums in school for their kids to feel feelings of guilt for their kids to um, not perform well at school, et cetera. And it doesn't take, you know, a genius to connect the dots. It, it, yeah, if they don't get to have dinner with mom or dad or whatever in a regular basis to have conversations, you know, people tend to do worse. Uh, kids tend to do worse developmentally. Yeah, a big surprise there. I mean, um, uh, before, last before we get to some of the, the solutions and the things that you sort of advocate toward um, the end of the book, um, I want to talk a little bit about financialization and, you know, you go through particularly like the, the history of Sears, um, you know, but like one, one thing that's really notable, I think, about modern capitalism is how so much of corporate uh, culture might be the wrong word. So much of the corporation is like purely as like a financial um, instrument. Right. And oftentimes <laughs> that means um, that it might be really good for some shareholders out there. But for the people who work in, in, in different corporations, 
um, you know, this can be something that's really, really devastating, um, you know, uh, for, for people who may have given their career to a company that is now seeing it sort of being raided by a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, private capital firms. I mean, could you talk a little bit about yeah. the development of financialization in America? Sure. Capital? I mean, I tell this story through the life of, of, of a guy named Bruce Miller, whom I met, um, obviously, when I started reporting the book, who had given 35 years of his life to Sears, which used to be this perhaps the most story brand in American capitalism. And he was, you know, he did well with Sears and they did well by him for a long time. You know, he was able to buy his house, buy, buy a truck, you know, and he was just a stellar employee and would do extra work and they would reward him for the extra work managers were. Um, but then Sears faced competition uh, from Walmart and um, uh, Kmart and the firm had invested too much in these other non-core businesses. Like we think of Sears as a store, but at some point Sears adopted the strategy called socks and stocks, which meant they were in real estate, they were insurance, they actually mm -hmm. developed an early form of the internet. They became a conglomerate and they didn't invest enough in their core business until it was too late. But that wasn't the only reason Sears has now gone bankrupt, right? In fact, that was a minor factor. The major factor was that uh, in its early distress at the turn of the millennium, a guy named Eddie Lampert, uh, who's a hedge fund guru, a hedge fund guy, bought Sears and did what a lot of Wall Street types do when they take, take over a firm, which is to manage it for cash flow. And what that means is the, the bottom line is that do you try to just extract as much cash as you can? Um, so what he would do, for example, is he would buy a lot of the properties the Sears stores sat on, which the Sears owned, he would buy it from Sears and then rent it back to Sears and pocket the rent money. Um, also, he had all sorts of bizarre sort of ideas inspired by Anne Rand about how to manage the company so that he divided the company into gazillion divisions. And all of the divisions were in competition with each other so that, you know, the appliance division would, would actually build the, you know, the other next door retail section for services provided. And he, this was his idea of like ultra competitive capitalism, making the firm more efficient. What he really was doing was just asset stripping it so that by the end of his tenure, Sears was bankrupt and Bruce Miller lost his home, lost his health care, lost his job. And this is a, a, a problem in the wider economy with what you call financialization. It's the takeover of the real economy where, you know, we build stuff or do stuff that ordinary people can recognize as a useful thing and increasingly subject that part of the economy to Wall Street, which is just moves money around and the added effect really is just, uh, you know, shifting assets from the real economy into their own asset ledgers. Um, it's asset stripping. I mean, that's the, it's the classic term for it. And the shocking thing is that the American corporation has been increasingly shifted toward cannibalizing itself for the sake of the financial market, right? The classic capitalist way of doing business is, you know, you have a product, you go to a bank, you borrow money, and you're you make some profit and you reinvest some of that profit in your business. And then you give a sort of a, a dividend to your, to your shareholders, including the bank for, okay, they've taken a risk on you. That's how most people think most firm work, firms work. And it, they did work that way for a very long time. That's not how the typical American corporation works today. Uh, the typical American corporation actively corrodes its own capital base, meaning 
not only do they not, they don't reinvest anything in the business itself, right? In order to make sure a business continues to thrive, you have to replenish the capital stock. Okay, the buildings wear down, you have to repair them or buy new ones, blah, blah, blah. They don't do that. They just keep returning money to Wall Street. Um, and so what that does, of course, is just it, it, it means that those firms go out of business eventually, because if you don't invest in a business, it goes down. And it just means that assets are transferred from communities, from workers, et cetera, over to, to Wall Street. It's a widespread pattern so that it used to be most American firms were sustainers. They would sustain themselves. Today, more than half of American corporations are eroders or corroders. They're eating away at their own capital base to service Wall Street rather than Wall Street serving the real economy. Yeah, I mean, uh, an example we always talk about on the show is, you know, dropping like the climate change implications of <laughs> of oil drilling and all that kind of stuff. When there was the gas prices, uh, the gas um, price crisis and the price of gasoline, you know, fell and all the major corporations were basically trying to pay people just to store their gasoline. Um, you know, they, they took a big hit with like those financial interests. Um, but then once the gas prices started rising again, what happened? Um, you didn't see a big investment from all of that windfall profits that the oil industry was getting back into production or anything like that. They were paying dividends and just sort of sitting on their stock um, for a really long time. And look, again, we all know about climate change, all that kind of stuff. I'm not getting into that right now. It's just an example of how absurd and irrational the system can be where gasoline is getting more and more expensive for everyday people. Um, instead of you know fixing that problem, these companies are literally just keeping oil on the ground. And, um, and, and, so, and just so, to speak to my own frustration mm -hmm. with the with the American right, you know, this it's pretty typical for um, yeah, for American conservatives nowadays in the kind of post Trump populist age to gripe about Wall Street in just a mm -hmm. vague way. But what they really mean is like, oh, you know, uh, Black BlackRock is pushing woke ideology mm -hmm. on the firms that it takes over. But in terms of actually protecting the real economy from this sort of Wall Street predation, it's, you know, the, the real game in town is Senator Liz Warren. She has an act called the um, Stop Wall Street Looting Act, which would, you know, for companies of a given size, where it's obviously important for the community for its workers and lots of other stakeholders, you know, a kind of private equity or hedge fund takeover wouldn't be automatic. It would be subject to sort of community uh, uh, veto, basically. And that's, you know, or, 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 or outright restriction. And that's, you know, that's absolutely necessary. And you, obviously, they're doing away with private equity and hedge fund abuses doesn't necessarily will fix American capitalism and make it better. But it, it would go a long way. I mean, because the pattern of, of pattern of accumulation that they create, private equity and hedge funds, is really, really kind of, well, it's predatory for everyone else. Like private equity firms increase the likelihood of a firm going into bankruptcy by several fold. Why? Because, because they manage the way they do. They manage for cash flow. They lever up firms, which means they load them up with debt, first of all, to buy it. And then they they don't invest in the firms. They squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. So and that's okay for them. You know, they they might buy ten firms and one of them goes bankrupt. Okay, sorry, they buy ten firms and nine of them go bankrupt. But they make enough on the tenth one that it's all a wash mm -hmm. and they actually do more than fine. But the average American worker can't take ten jobs at the same time and hope that one of them works out. Most people just have one job. And so that's the pattern of accumulation that's associated with this particularly kind of predatory form of Wall Street um, accumulation. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, um, I, I just want to check in really fast. Um, I want to get to the second part. Do you think we can go another 10, 15? Or oh, yeah, I have time. Okay. I have time. Yeah. Great. Um, so, yeah, I want to talk about some of, of, of the, the solutions that you sort of lay out here, right, or some of the, the historical models that you look toward. Um, you know, you write very positively about um, FDR in particular, but also a little bit about some of the social democratic movements um, in, in the post-war era. Um, so first, I want you to sort of lay out, you know, your case for those. Um, but maybe to get us started, you know, one aspect of, of FDR, part, uh, along with like the higher rates of unionization, stronger social safety net, all that kind of stuff, was also a lot of public investment, but also um, public companies and public control. So do you, would you support something like an expansion of TVA models or something like that to build out more uh, publicly controlled industry? Or do you still prefer those things to be held privately, but with more regulation and a stronger social safety net, higher rates of unionization? Uh, both. I mean, there are certain certain things that where we, we, we realize that um, the government does better. OK, mm -hmm. so like uh, a lot of network industries um, like railroads, Mm -hmm. we are actually we're, so if you're if you're this is a good sorry I'm jumping across the Atlantic but like Britain's trains ran much better when there was just one nationalized you know or a few kind of cartelized train uh, 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 firms as opposed to a gazillion lines that are competitive with each other right it just if you want to get from A to B to C and if it's going in a circle or whatever geographic shape you can imagine it's more rational for that to just be owned by the same company rather than you taking a, you know, whatever, one, private line A and then have to shift to private line B and have different ticket systems. It just makes more sense to have one. Um, so I'm not like automatically opposed to nationalizing certain things. Um, healthcare should absolutely be nationalized. I, I, I favor Medicare for all. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on the record saying that. There are certain things that just should not be privatized. I, I have a chapter on the book, as you know, about the privatization of emergency services and mm -hmm. firefighting, um, which, I mean, the really shocking part is not just that these uh, services are becoming privatized, but that private equity is taking them over and running them to the ground the same way they might do with like Sears. Mm -hmm. But the still more shocking fact is that the public workers own pension plans are investing in the same private equity funds that are, in the, that are in the business of privatizing their own jobs. So workers' capital is coercively being used against them for their own dispossession. So firefighting, water, et cetera, all of this uh, should return to the public. It, just like ordinary Americans think, like no ordinary, if you ask an ordinary American, you know, should your water company be owned by a private equity fund on Lexington Avenue? They would all be horrified. Of course not. You have this sense that, um, and so um, I I favor TVA type developments for sure. Um, yes. Okay. So I answered that part of your FDR question. Yeah. No. I mean, but the you know the the other side is like I mean this is a very different uh, kind of argument again that you, than you would get um, from people um, generally on, on on the right that there is a kind of call for a revitalization of that kind of FDR New Deal. Uh, return to politics, um, you know, in, in mm -hmm. society at large. I mean, I was just wondering, you know, for people who are less familiar with your work, haven't read the book yet, um, if you could sort of lay yeah. that out. And yeah. also, I mean, like how this ties in, um, you know, to, you know, your conception of yourself as somebody on the right, right? Like, mm -hmm. where is the right wing argument for that kind of policy or politics? 
Yes. Um, so, okay, so I divide up America's economic history into three stages broadly. Um, the first is the um, competitive or classical liberal stage, which is what reigned, you know, from roughly from the founding until the New Deal. And that was a sort of deeply crisis-ridden capitalism of the competitive era. Not only was it brutal on workers, but it's characterized by lots of irrationality. You know, uh, when you go back to the go back to the rail example, a quarter of American rail companies went bankrupt by the final quarter of the uh, 19th century. Why? Because um, the competitive model isn't good for rail. Lots of people build up rail and then they over they overbuild up and then services aren't used or there's too too cutthroat competition on price and firms go out of bank business and it hurts everyone um so that was the characteristics of 19th century american capitalism of course it's banking crises and frequent currency issues and so on and so forth so um in the beginning in the 20th century with figures like woodrow wilson um herbert hoover and of course uh uh Teddy Roosevelt and then uh, the other Roosevelt, FDR, there was all this sense that, okay, the competitive model doesn't work, that um, there are things that markets don't do well. Um, in fact, there are harms that markets inflict on the political community, and the political community has the right to, um, has the right and the duty to bring the market under greater political control and to forge something like a class compromise model, which was what prevailed in the United States from like the 1945 to 1973. And I think it went on a bit longer in Europe until the neoliberal counterpunch. Um, and then came neoliberalism. So the three characteristics of each, or the characteristics of each of the three stages is, classical liberalism says, uh, leave the market alone, let the market be autonomous. Um, now, of course, the market system itself, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, is itself a product of state coercion. So there's a kind of, there's a nonsense element to that because the system itself came about and is sustained by state coercion through things like bankruptcy laws and blah, blah, blah that we discussed. So it's illusory, but they pretend like the market is this autonomous thing. The social democratic state says, okay, the market needs to be brought under a greater degree of political control the fundamental aspect of which is empowering the relatively powerless. Um, so especially the Wagner Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, all of these make it easier for workers to mount countervailing power. The third stage is neoliberalism, which is the counterpunch of, of capital, frankly. And the goal there is not just to leave, have the market left alone but by the state, but to increasingly transfigure the state in the image of the market so that uh, public goods become more and more privatized. Uh, issues that used to be for, up for political contestation between classes become more and more uh, private issues that you, know, you can't have a say over, can't have a say over your factory getting shipped uh, to offshore. You can't have a say over um, how your scheduling is grinding down your ability mm -hmm. to interact with your kids. All of this becomes your individual responsibility to strike a uh, you know, better work-life balance, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the neoliberal model. So I think of the three of those, the one that's most promising, although it seems like it's the exception, um, is that model of the New Deal order, social Christian democracy, it was, as it was called in Europe. Of course, the model somewhat varied, but the idea was just that, you know, the market is a tool. It is not 
a thing to be made a fetish of, and the ultimate goal of society is to secure the common good of whole. Yes, you know, markets do certain things well, but there has to be kind of greater political control over it. Um, and that political control, I mean, the most important aspect of it is a more heavily unionized uh, labor force. And it worked really well. I mean, it, it was, a, it, I'm not, I don't, I don't romanticize that era. There was, it certainly had its flaws racially. It was, um, you know, still tainted by legal discrimination and so forth. But as, as, as to the crises that had sort of boiled over in the Great Depression and World War II, the social democratic model and the New Deal model addressed a lot of them very well. And the crises of that model in the 1970s were sort of, uh, were bad, but they weren't like irreparable. And yet the neoliberals, Reagan, Thatcher, and the kind of their pet theorists like Milton Friedman, Hayek, et cetera, used the, mi the relatively minor crises of the social democratic model to completely sort of return to the older, and even go further than that, because as I said, neoliberalism governs society by the market, as Michel Foucault said. Um, and so I think my, my preference, just to lay my cards mm -hmm. on the table, and I think some of your left viewers and listeners will disagree with this, I think um, I, I'm not for the abolition of one class by the other or the total abolition of private property for all sorts of moral and sort of philosophical commitments. Um, but rather I favor the class compromise model that was represented by, by the new deal order. Yeah. Well, um, so I'm, I'm just going to sort of lay this out cause I'm just, you know, it, Go for it's, it. it's interesting to hear, you know, to speak with you and then to hear your perspective on this kind of stuff, because, um, you know, I mean, just really briefly, um, like, would you consider yourself to be a populist necessarily or? Right, which I know is loaded. Yeah, because, I mean, in the sense that I think, you know, if populism just means that, um, you know, government should seek to do what the majority want, I think, I think that's right. I think above all, I would describe myself as a kind of, as a kind of Catholic, Catholic New Dealer, Catholic Social Democrat. It's a pretty familiar figure not too long ago. No, true. No, I mean, I, I lay that out just because um, a lot of this program is sort of looking at like what we would call the populist moment or like the past 10 years of populist politics, both left and right. And, you know, I'll just do the briefest, briefest, briefest like breakdown of like, you know, our thesis here, which is that, you know, populism in the sense of like, yeah, we want to do politics for the people is all grand. Um, but the fact is, is that neoliberalism has completely degraded the social, completely degraded the community. Um, so like the, talking about the people is like a very abstract thing. Like we don't have that kind of cohesive or, or coherent political movement right now that in my opinion would be necessary um, to, uh, you know, to be able to enact all these kind of things. Like an example I always give about Bernie Sanders is that, you know, he always said, not me, us. And people were like, oh, that's nice. Bernie's thinking about us. But what he meant was that, you know, to put Medicare for all or do these kind of programs, you would need a sustained kind of class oriented movement to push up against all of the roadblocks that you would experience um, in government. And for me on the left, I feel like the left has learned almost none of the lessons of the populist uh, experience that we just had. Right. Um, where, you know, we tried really hard with burning, but lost. In, in the UK uh, with Corbyn brutally defeated, Syriza in uh, Greece, um, you know, ended up administering more austerity to the people. 
Um, you know, so I'm curious to speak to somebody who considers themselves to be on the right. Um, you know, how you sort of look at like this maybe past 10 years of the populist upsurge in politics, which, yeah, got some people elected, particularly if you would consider Trump popular or something like that. Um, but at least being able to create structures or organizations that have the ability to put in these kind of things that we're talking about feels very, um, you know, it feels very hollow, those movements today. But I'm curious, you know, your perspective on that. Um, so here, here, here's the problem. I, I, I wish I could say I'm more hopeful than you, but I actually do think that the populist movement has largely fizzled out, including its right wing variety um, and its left wing variety. But I know the right better. Um, the, you know, the promise of Trumpism was lostly, was largely wasted. Um, you know, Trump won the highest marginal share of union households since Ronald Reagan in 1984. The reason he did that was because he seemed to get workers and he definitely had an anti-free trade plank. And he, in terms of like tariffs on China um, and kind of the coupling, which is no small beer, he did deliver that. But on the whole, you know, his administration was just as conventionally Republican as any other administration. So his Department of Labor was like stuffed with union busters, uh, you know, his one signature kind of legislative achievement was actually a cor corporate tax bonanza that was engineered by Paul Ryan. Um, and, you know, and now, especially in the sort of post-Trump moment, and who knows if it's really a post-Trump moment, but it feels like he's sort of disappeared from our lives. Uh, the Republican Party is even, it's, it's, it's even more kind of sinister in some ways because you have, um, increasingly the right attempting to reconsolidate the older free market agenda, but with this veneer of cultural populism so that they constantly talk about, you know, uh, woke this and that, mm -hmm. Disney, Bud Light, whatever, but they, they, they won't address the one thing that would cut off the overweening power of corporations to tell the rest of us what to think, whatever the ideology might be, which is just to restructure the balance of power between labor and capital. Instead, it's just like, you know, boycott this and that or mm -hmm. go after Disney's, you know, whatever. It, it would not address any of those kind of fundamental structural issues. Um, so I can diagnose that from the right. I don't know. You probably have a better diagnosis of why it failed on the left. But on the right, yes, a lot of working class people are voting for the Republican Party. That happened in 2016. As I said, it was the white working class. And then in 2020, Trump not only consolidated the white, white working class, but he made significant inroads among people of color and working class people mm -hmm. of color. Particularly in Texas. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And the Rio Grande Valley, where I used to live, for example. But here's the problem. The, that may be true at the voting level. It is not true at the level of the power base of the Republican Party. And the mm -hmm. power base of the Republican Party is not so much the corporations. Those are on the mostly on the Democratic side, or a lot of them are. Um, it, it, it's somehow even worse, but this is very hard to talk about, uh, frankly, on the right, but I can speak forthrightly with you, is that the power base of the Re Republican Party is small and regional capital. It's the small-time rich. It's the guy who owns a chain of uh, regional tire distribution centers in the research triangle of North Carolina. And that kind of person um, is like, the, he's in some ways, he's menaced by the market system, by its vicissitudes and, and its unpredictability. And he kind of is angry at, at something called the corporation or something like that. 
Um, but his only answer to it is to break down the few regulatory structures that remain that somewhat constrain the market system. It's not to, um, he does, I'm certainly is very hostile to unions. His idea of the working man is this kind of romanticized, really sort of sole business owner, sole proprietor. It's like a guy who has his own roofing business. It's not the actually existing working class of today, which is like, you know, lots of uh, educated, but precarious people. It's lots of, I don't know, like service industry workers who are Latina or African-American, whatever. That he has this romanticized image of the worker as a as a really a sole businessman, and he's hostile to unionization, et cetera. And that's that's a really powerful force in the Republican Party. Now, because the party wants to cater to working people, at some point it has to deliver something. And so I think that two two paths lay before the Republican Party. Either it says, "Hey." We now have lots of working people to, who vote for us, uh, working class people who vote for us. So we should cater policies at least somewhat to, to what they want. Um, and that means, as democratic coalitions do, and small d democratic coalitions do, you know, sort of working out a deal between the workers in the coalition and the small entrepreneurs who wield a lot of influence. Um, or... It doesn't, and it just keeps going down this road of, you know, getting mad about woke capital and et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. but not really giving any policy sops to the workers. And I think that that will just mean um, for now that workers that came to the Republican Party will gradually be disillusioned. And maybe they'll just be disillusioned into utter depoliticization again um, or what have you. But, I'm, you know, that, that those are the choices facing the Republican Party, and I'm not very hopeful. Hmm. Well, I mean, uh, it's definitely um, it's been such a, a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, your book was uh, was a very interesting read. People can uh, get it now, Tyranny Inc. Um, and also, I will say, um, I've really enjoyed the stuff that y'all are doing at, over at Compact Magazine as well. Obviously, don't agree with it in its entirety, but uh, it's something that's very, uh, very much, I think, uh, it's entering into a space that I think is lacking um, across the board in, in this country. So appreciate that. As Thank well. you. Well, we, we don't agree with it either. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. I mean, I really appreciate uh, you spending some time uh, with us. And uh, yeah, thanks, brother. Thank you, David. Cheers. Good job, David. All right. Yeah, Matt. I mean, uh, I know. <clears throat> All right. I'm too big here. There we go. Um, I know you weren't uh, present for the interview because you're at Majority Report, but I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Um, yeah, I probably should have said up front that it wasn't out of a protest uh, because <laughs> David was talking to a guy in a suit and tie um, that uh, no, it was, it was just scheduling. Um, I am, in fact, blocked by a SORAB, but I thought that um, but it's for a reason that I can't really find. I, I will call it uh, a square because he deleted the tweet that I was responding to and I I was rude, but I think it might have been uh, his. Uh, Matt, you can be a little prickly online, I will say. Of course. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it comes with territory, but I thought that was a delightful conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is in the spirit of our kind of TMBS um lineage we often had conversation with luke and I, I forgot you know what he's up to remember michael's conservative friend luke as opposed to uh yeah, i don't remember but yeah i mean uh, well for me i mean like sorry do you, do but you i just want to say I'll, I'll wrap it up quick like i think it's very interesting i think it's gonna be interesting for you know not for everybody but for a certain type of person that i think we want to 
that is concerned about this that maybe is, is pre-ideological in a certain way. Like a Marxist talking to a conservative about private uh, power, I think is an important conversation. And I think I was pleased by the chat's response too, as sort of um, trying to suss out um, more interested than outrage, I think, which is a, you know, a good, uh, good way to land. Well, I mean, I'll just say this, like the, the book is, is, is a really good, um, uh, retelling and like I don't want to spoil it but the introduction is, is good he does a little bit of a trick on the reader and it got me I know it got a couple of our other friends who have read it recently um, but you know it was, it was interesting to read it because like obviously like you know in the final analysis of like you know this system being a problem like there's an agreement there there's a big disagreement on one how we got here and two what there is that we're going to do about it um, but, you know, as somebody who reads a lot of, for example, like Verso titles, and I'm not like talking bad about them, but, you know, there's a kind of way that these arguments are usually made from the left. It was interesting to read somebody coming from a, maybe a little bit of a different perspective and tradition making these kind of arguments. Like there's way more Aristotle um, citations in this book than in a typical Verso text or something. Yeah. Well, and I, I just think like, I mean, and maybe this is specific to me with my Midwestern, like I, I talk to Catholics about politics an awful lot and to be even to be able to even gesture at uh oh here's a catholic that's like also seeing things your way and also like i think catholics i think he's not wrong when he when he hearkens to that lineage you know that mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's part of. there's there, there's something actually to that now you know whether that's conducive to actually building a coalition for social democracy i i don't know broadly of a suit but i think on an individual level it's absolutely like fruitful uh a conversation to be having you know and, and last thing i'll say is that um i was saying this to matt via text during the interview that you know um when it comes to so rabbits like there's so many people out there who like you know present themselves as like heterodox thinkers right and also yeah. by the way like being heterodox is not necessarily like a good thing right i'm not like saying it's a bad thing in some case but like you know just because you're like have you know conflicting ideas or ideas that seem that they're in tension with each other's i don't know everyone always is like oh you're a contrarian that must mean that you're really really smart well oftentimes contrarians are assholes um but in Sorb's case i mean he makes a really compelling case um and, and criticism of of capital and i think one thing that's interesting about him is in a world where so many on the right who present themselves as conservatives right like a jordan peterson or ben shapiro or or a dave rubin um, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting to actually talk to somebody who is like legitimately, legitimately more heterodox. It is not just trying to repackage the same old kind of Republican conservative arguments, um, in a yeah. new frame. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I it, it's not very often you see, um, FDR, uh, a political economy, nostalgic conservatives. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, I think, I, but I, I think that is because, uh, and it's it's not because um, like I think that's partially um, artificial because of our media and mm -hmm. you know to the extent that we can counter that to an extent and maybe own that territory uh, I think is really uh, you know I really like that. Oh, totally. Well, folks, we're going to jump over to the post game um, and we're going to be talking with our good friend and buddy, Mr. Ben Burgess. You know him from Give Them an Argument from the great Jackwood magazine. I mean, also a few books, including one, the same name as this podcast, Give Them an Argument. We're going to be talking his new piece in Jacobin. Conservatives think Marxism is anything that scares them. Um, it's a really good piece there. Uh, so really looking forward to jumping into that. Matt's got a retelling of his experience with his teacher and uh, inspiration, Tim Poole. 
Tim Pool, bro. I don't know. I've watched the video that he's like, hey, you know, um, work harder or whatever. You, you're not getting ahead. Work harder. And the gala, this fucking guy. So, yeah, um, patreon.com just left reckoning um, for that. All right, folks. We'll see you in a couple of times. In a couple, a couple of times. See you yeah, in a couple, couple times. See you on another time. Sorry, I have my other screen open and Ben Ben just <laughs> popped up, so I'm a little distracted. We'll be over at patreon.com/slash/leftreckoning for the post camp. Come see us there. Peace.